James chapter 1, verse 19 through 27. James chapter 1, verse 19 through 27. The ultimate to-do list. And I have entitled this sermon. And I was reading this morning, actually this morning, this week, about a man who is, as far as we know, has given more blood and platelets than anyone else in the United States. And uh, it's pretty interesting. There have been some who've given as much as 8, 9, 10, 11 gallons, 15 gallons, 18 gallons, 21 gallons, and 26 gallons of blood and platelets. And uh, there's one gentleman here that this just almost defies imagination, blows my mind. His name is Paul F. Michaels. He's from Villa Hills, Kentucky. You know how many gallons of blood that he has donated? Gallons of blood and platelets that he's donated? Someone just take a wild guess. What, Carpenter? 22. Anybody else? 22. That seems like a lot, doesn't it? 22 gallons of blood? How about 75 gallons of blood and platelets at this point? And he's still going. This is of August the 18th. He has now given 75 gallons of blood and platelets. And uh, I was wondering about him and how he did this. He said, it's just commitment. <laughs> I just do it. I do it every 57 days. And uh, get, he can give platelets every uh, two to three weeks. That's just unbelievable that somebody could give that much blood, con- considering that most of us give a pint. Now, I'll let you do the math. I was doing the math, and I'm just thinking, is, it doesn't tell me how old this guy is. I don't know if he's 100 and he's still giving blood or, or how this works, that you give 75 gallons. Now, you can give, if you're in good health, you can give two pints. So that's a quart. We all know it takes four quarts to make a gallon. You, you do the math. That's a lot of blood. And I, I look at that, and, and I'm amazed because... Uh, actually, since I've been overseas to Africa, I can't give right now, but I, I think about what that would take. And, you know, we always come up with different excuses on why we can't give blood, what, what we can't do. And this is not a give blood sermon. This is an illustration, just so you know. Uh, but as, as I look at that, I am so reminded of our text of being doers of the Word, as James speak, as we just saw the Scripture there. Things to do, and a lot of times we have to-do lists, but unless we make a firm commitment to do them, they just become lists. Now, in the world that we live in, when we look at truth, as James talked about, there is a mirror that people look in, and if we're not careful, we simply look in that mirror and then we leave, forgetting what we looked at, or not really catching what we saw, or not really getting an accurate picture of the truth of what we really are seeing. And, you know, up until the 14th century, the only mirrors they really had were that of brass or bronze, or if you were really wealthy, gold or silver. And they would polish it so much to where you could get a good glimpse, a good glare, so to speak, of your face. And you've seen that before, sometimes maybe in an instrument, a brass instrument or something that of that nature. You've been able to see yourself, maybe in the chrome. And if you polish it a lot and you get the light just right, you can see your face pretty effectively. But for the most part, when you look at those, and if you don't take care of them, if you don't really study it and real careful and hold it just right, it becomes kind of like tinfoil. You can see yourself 
But when you look at it, you don't really get an accurate description of what you look like. And today we live in a society where our culture tells us that you can't really know truth. There are no absolutes in life. It depends on your culture. It depends on your vantage point. And when we begin to look at our values in that kind of light, in our society, in our lives in that kind of society, it's glare, it's glare and it's deficiency. If we really stop and think of it, think about it, where that leads us is pretty obvious. We can't see a true picture of what truth is, of what right and wrong is. And we see a very jaded or a very false picture of what truth is. Sometimes we, uh, we get into self-help uh, books, which I don't think necessarily are bad. We need some motivations. But sometimes I've, uh, I've dealt with people who have a very obvious and a very serious condition or habit or addiction. But what they'll do is they'll say, well, I'm okay. It's not that bad. And they'll start to read. Well, you know, I, I, asked, I asked some of my friends who are doing the same thing, and they say, we're good. We're all great here. And I start to look, and I start to measure myself only by those who have more deficiencies in their lives and only more uh, problems or habitual addictions than I do. And so I'm going to look at them and I'm going to think, I'm doing great. <laughs> Things are good in my life. Look at him <laughs> or look at her. And we start to try to make ourselves believe that message. Still, others will catch just a glimpse of truth. They'll say, I, I believe in truth and I believe in the Word of God, but they simply look at it quickly. And then they walk away. They don't really receive it. And that's what James is really talking about there. In a sense, they have not let the truth of God's Word affect the brokenness of their lives. But the Word of God is true and pure. And when we sit and we really study and we really examine and we really receive it, it will reflect the truth back to us, just as a mirror will reflect the truth back to us. You know, sometimes we like to get those mirrors kind of like that tinfoil that kind of, you know, they don't make us look quite as bad. Maybe we go to the fairground, if we look at this one, we're really skinny, I'm really tall. And we like to look at mirrors like that, kind of like this one over here, but it's not really a true image. Well, you know, in Scriptures... And in life itself, there are really four types of people, aren't there? There, first of all, there are people who are wishers. You know, I I wish I wish I could give blood. I, I wish that I could be a committed Christian. I, I wish I really had faith. And they talk about I wish, or I, 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 one day I will, but never really get past I wish. Some are talkers. They say, I'm going to do that. You know what? I, I'm going to start having a time of prayer and devotion. I'm going to start praying for my wife, for my husband. I'm going to start praying for my children. I'm going to get faithful in church. I'm going to start serving. I, I'm going to do it. I, 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 you know, I'm soon, I'm going to do it. I'm trying to get some things worked out in my life right now. Some things at, 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 in my business. There are lots of things going on. 
But I tell you, one, one day that's, that's coming. Or the dabblers. Okay, I, I'm in. I'm going to do it. And they start, and then life gets hard. They begin to serve. They begin to, to take time to really invest. Maybe they get in a Bible study. Maybe they get in a prayer group. Maybe they get in accountability. But then somebody asks me a hard question. Or then I see a Scripture, and it makes me mad when I see that verse. I don't like that verse. I don't think that's what God was really saying. I'd like to take that out. Oh, Thomas Jefferson, that thing out of here. By the way, Thomas Jefferson, the reason I said that, I just realized that I'm, I'm making statements that most people don't know what I'm talking about. Thomas Jefferson uh, decided to take out all the verses that he didn't like uh, from the saying, teachings of Jesus and kind of formulated his own Bible. That's why I said that, so I'll not use that next service. Nevertheless, <laughs> and then there are people who actually do it. That's what James is speaking about here. Let's take our Bibles and look at this passage. James chapter 1, verse 19. My dear brothers, and notice he's speaking to believers, those, uh, those who are followers of Christ, those who uh, are brethren and sisters of Christ. Take note of this. Listen to this. I want you to listen to what I'm telling you. And we're going to see that one of the first aspects of being a doer is receiving, receiving. He said, I want you to receive this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Now, can I tell you, for this point in my life today, if there is a more convicting verse in Scripture, I don't know what it is for me personally. I'm not suggesting that it's that for you, but for me. Because I, this is so going to encourage you if you just started coming to our church, but I am deficient in all three areas. My wife could share a public testimony if she was here in this service right now. This is not something I'm proud of. This is something that I do. This is something I struggle with. I prayed about it this week. And lo and behold, I was praying about it. And don't you just know when God gives these opportunities, we kind of want the Santa Claus God. God, just give me strength and make me patient with my husband and my wife and my children and everything else. And we think we'll just get some magic inoculation and, hey, it'll all go away. But you know what God will do? As we talked about in James chapter 1, as we talked about verses 2 through 18, He'll put you in circumstances in which you can exercise and give you the opportunity. And, and God gave me about three opportunities this week to do this, and two I failed and one I made a D minus in right here. So uh, I, as I read these Scriptures, let me know I am not telling you what to do. I am, is the Holy Spirit convicting me of how deficient and inadequate I am in, in lots of respects. And in this particular verse, I, I, I resonate. Everyone should be quick to listen. Ready to listen. Now, let me say this. Many scholars, and, and I agree with them to an extent, say this has regards to the worship aspect. In other words, as James is speaking to believers, and as the truth of God's Word is unfolding, as the teachings of Christ have come about, many are annoyed and some have become agitated at the word that is being shared with them. Everyone should be quick to listen and slow to speak. It was not uncommon in the context of synagogue in that day for those who particularly sat in the front, uh, particularly the men, uh, because the men would sit in the front half and the women would sit in the back half. Now, the Bible never says that we're supposed to do it that way, but that's the way it was done. It's still done in the Islamic culture today. And matter of fact, it is my personal belief when, when uh, Paul is speaking and he says, 
uh, women are to be silent in church. It is for that fact that men were in the front half and women were in the back half. And he was saying, you know what, just hold your questions uh, because it's going to be disruptive. So just hold your questions till you get home. And if you can't hear something without a sound system, then address that when you get there. But nevertheless, in this particular instance, he's saying, be quick to listen. Don't shoot your hand up so fast. Don't give your little argument. This is the way I was raised. This is the way that it went. This is the way that it's supposed to be. Be quick to listen and slow to speak. Wait. Listen. God, I'm so convicted of that. I want to say something. I mean, I'm still a third grade boy. You know what I mean? Except I don't raise my hand now. And most men can identify with this. And if I was to ask uh, your wife to raise your hand right now, she'd probably raise your hand for you, okay? But she doesn't want to embarrass you at this particular moment. I, I see some going right now, not nodding their heads. But women, I've, I've seen women like this too. So this is not strictly a man thing. It's just that it's pretty much us, okay? The righteousness, uh, so here we are, and slow to become angry, for God's, for man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. Slow to become angry. Slow to become angry. You go, well, how could that even be in the context of worship? I, I don't even get how that would be accurate or how that would be true. What, what do you mean, slow to become angry? Well, what about if I read, matter of fact, let's just turn here. Turn with me to Malachi if you would, it's a verse, it's a book that I'm sure you're always using. Uh, Malachi chapter 3, it's the last book of the Old Testament right before Matthew. Let me quote a couple of verses for you. For the love of money is the root of all evil. Malachi chapter 3, verse 8, says this, Will a man rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how do we rob you in tithes and offerings? You are under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you have been robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. I'll just stop right there. How many of you, when I started reading that, it kind of aggravated you? Matter of fact, if I hadn't set it up and I just got up and I read that passage, I'm like, don't talk about money. I hate it when they read that verse because they take that verse out of context. It just makes me so mad. I think that's a good indicator of what James might be talking about when he says, My brethren, be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. When we automatically begin to let that blood rise, and then we just kind of stay there. And let me tell you this. There's actually two types of anger. There's actually multiple different words used in the Greek and Hebrew for anger. There's, of course, thumos, which is the righteous indignation of God Almighty. When you see that word anger that God uses, particularly in the Old Testament, usually it's the word thumos. It is the righteous anger. You, you have, and matter of fact, it literally means this. It means an intense energy or passion. Hopefully, sometimes I even demonstrate that. Sometimes you'll hear pastors and some people, oh, he's so mad, I don't like to hear that. Sometimes we're just passionate. And, and that's a good thing. As a matter of fact, Paul says in Ephesians 4.26, be angry and sin not. You may get passionate and emotional, particularly about things that you value, things that are right. And that is actually a good thing. But Paul says, in that time of righteous anger, in that time of intense passion and emotion, do not sin. 
Do not say some things that cripple and destroy and are destructive. Do not do things that rip apart the body of Christ. Do not do things that injure your brother or sister. It's not a sin to have that emotion flowing, to have that passion ignited. And even for you to think, as God did, and as we see Jesus doing in Mark chapter 3, when they were so angry with Him, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, simply because He was about to heal on the Sabbath. And there was a man who had a crippled hand, who had a withered hand. And Jesus, that word anger, that thumos, it starts to boil in Him. But it's a righteous. It's a righteousness. Because why? Because it's not defending Him. He's defending Others, those who cannot care for themselves. He is defending the value of the, of the holiness of God where others are using it and manipulating it for their own desires and pleasure. And Jesus, we see in the temple, what does He do? That thumos comes to, to fruition. But yet He doesn't sin. He simply takes on in defense of the character of God Nothing for himself, not to, to elevate himself in any manner. So when we look at this text, God is not saying, never feel those feelings, never act like that, never get a passion in your eye. It's not what he's saying at all. It's what do we do with that passion? What do we do with that emotion? What do we do with that intensity? And James says this. He said, don't let it become anger. Or gay. Don't let it become that seething resentment where you want to kind of get back at, where you are so angry that you just let it seethe inside of you. You know, there are several different types of anger found in Scripture. There's rage, and sometimes when we talk about rage, we're talking about when people take off in that emotion and they act destructively. Proverbs 29, 22, a hot-tempered man starts fights and gets into all kinds of trouble. There's wrath, and sometimes this word is attributed to God. I think indignation might be a better word uh, that usually could use to describe God, particularly in the Old Testament. But it's one that seeks to retaliate and to take revenge. Luke 6, 11, the Pharisees were furious with Jesus and began to plot how they might destroy Him, what they might do to Jesus. Resentment. Anger that stems from a grievance. It's, it's one that's suppressed. It's kind of like the older son in the story of the parable of the prodigal son. The prodigal son has left and he has taken all of his father's riches or his piece of the inheritance. He's squandered away and now he's coming back home. And now that he's come back home, we see a situation where the other brother uh, is who has been faithful, the older brother who has been there from day one, begins to get upset because he recognizes, I never got a party. Dad never really does this kind of thing for me. Why is he just opening his arms up? He, he ought to be punished. And it's that anger that seethes. It's that anger that wishes for your destruction. That's what resentment is. Those are all angers of sin. But indignation because of injustice, because of the heart 
that longs for what is right and what is best. When we have a righteous indignation, when we see children abused, when we see those who cannot care for themselves tortured and taken advantage of, then the indignation, the passion ought to churn and it ought to motivate us to righteous action, to doing something. So anger in itself is not wrong. Passion in itself is not wrong. It's what we do with that passion. You know, many of us might be what we call manic. We're just exploders. Something happens and we just go off. And there's a body count. We kind of have that manic personality, that exploding personality. And some are manipulators. I get mad and I start to manipulate things. I start trying to exploit people and exploit situations. And Then they're the martyrs who are the inflictors. Pity parties. I always think of Eeyore, the little donkey on Winnie the Pooh. Oh, things are terrible. Oh, that's just the way it always happens to me. Uh, you, when you adopt that mindset, you are on a serious road to depression. You know what I mean? When you start to think the whole world's after you and you can only see the negative side or the mute, I, I, I'm just imploding inside because I think it's godly somehow to never say anything. Just keep it all inside and I'll never say anything. And again, I'm talking about saying it in a healthy manner. It's not necessarily godly for you to just seethe inside. Usually the best thing for you to do is have a meaningful conversation to express it in a quiet, sincere way to the person or to someone else who can help you resolve it. So what does the Scriptures tell us here? Well, first of all, we see that we need to be men and women and followers of Christ who respond. Who respond or who, re- who receive, who react. We see right here, how do we react? We react by being quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. And then we remove. How do we remove? Well, in verse 30, 21, Therefore get rid of all moral filth, that evil is so prevalent, and humbly accept the Word planted in you which can save you. There's another word, save you, soto, or soterio, word we get for salvation in the Greek. And simply it means this, it means to deliver, okay, to deliver from harm or to deliver from guilt. That's what that word means, soto. It says save right there. Realize this, let me give you a brief theology of salvation. First of all, guys, we are saved, those of us who have received Christ and received His forgiveness, are saved from the penalty of sin. The Bible tells us in Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The Bible tells us in Romans 3, 23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So we have been saved from the penalty of sin. Okay? So that's past. Now, in the present we are being saved from sin. And that's what this particular verse is talking about right here. We are being saved from the destruction of sin today. Does it mean that bad things don't happen? Does it mean that difficult times won't come? But what it means is we are being saved from a lifestyle that would bring destruction upon our character and upon our well-being. Does it ensure and inoculate us from hard times? But when we are not 
living in the grace and the salvation of God, when we are living our own way, pursuing our own flesh, as Scripture talks about, we can find ourselves, in when we avert the Word of God, in addictions and things that are destroying us personally. So he's saying, if you will live by the principles of Scripture that I have given you, not only been saved from the penalty, but you can be saved from the destruction of life right now, the destruction of sin that can take a hold of you. And then thirdly, I will one day in the future tense be saved from all sin. In other words, I will be saved from not only the appearance, but the condition and the surroundings of sin. So it's a threefold process. I've been saved from the penalty. I'm being saved from the destruction. One day I will be completely removed from sin. So as he's speaking here, he's not simply saying salvation in the sense of the penalty. He is speaking to believers, remember. So, in verse 22, do not merely listen to the Word and so deceive yourselves, but do what it says. Do what it says. So we see that we need to remove, and then we see next here that we need to respond. Respond. Do not merely listen and so deceive yourselves, but do what it says. There's a demand given to us in Scripture here, to be doers of the Word. He goes on and he says, Anyone who listens to the Word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror. Examine. Examine yourself. The demand is given. Do not simply listen and deceive yourselves, but do what it says and then examine ourselves. The picture here is given of a man who simply comes in, sees himself in the mirror, and he looks and maybe his hair is not combed, he's not shaved, and maybe he's got stuff on his face, and he sees it, but he looks at it, and then he walks away and he thinks, I'll deal with it later. And he goes to the breakfast table, and he begins to eat breakfast, and then he forgets and he just goes to work. It's the picture of the man who saw the truth, who glanced at what was real, but then soon afterwards simply said, I'll get to it, or it's not as bad as it probably looked. I bet you when others say it, they don't see it that way. And then he moves on, forgetting what was true and going on. That's what we see right here. Anyone who listens to the Word but does not do what it says, does not take action, is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. So we see the demand, we see the examination, then we'll see that we need to develop as we move on here. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. As we develop, as we examine, as we believe, as we become, we shall do. Examine. Believe, become, do. See, it's not just I get all this knowledge in my head and then that makes me holy. Do you know what the opposite of ignorance is in the spiritual life, in the Christian life? You know what the opposite of ignorance is? It's not knowledge, it's obedience. Every time you hear Jesus say this, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. You know what He's saying there? He's saying... He who hears His Word, let him obey. Let him respond. Let him obey and follow. That's what He's saying when He says, He who has ears, let him hear. As we move on, if anyone considers himself, and we recognize here the concept of self-deception, if anyone 
considers himself religious and yet does not keep a tight ring on his tongue, he deceives himself and his religion is worthless. It's not about what you say. It's not being a talker. You can't say, oh, I got so angry and that's why I said that. Jesus or uh, James specifically says here, if anyone considers himself religion, you're going to have those times, but keep a tight ring. Be careful what you say or, or else you will invalidate the word that which you're trying to share, the image of Christ of which you are saying you're displaying. Verse 27, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in distress and to keep oneself from being polluted. Demonstrating compassion. He says, if you want to know what real religion is, it's this. And remember, James is talking about being a doer of the word. This is what pure religion is. It is this. It is to visit the widows and the orphans. So, let me ask you that. Is that all we're supposed to do? Just visit the widows and the orphans? Well, let me give you a little context on this. If you'll think back into the early centuries, uh, particularly around the first century, there was no welfare system. There were no charity hospitals. Uh, there was not any kind of uh, really enacted or governmental provisions for those who were poor or those who were handicapped. And those who were the lowest ring in society in that time were this, were orphans and widows. Many times, orphans were left on their own. If there was not a family member to take them on, that was it. And then widows. Why? Because widows and orphans usually couldn't get a job. There wasn't work for them except for prostitution. And that's why you found, so, that's why you see prostitution, I believe, so prevalent in Scripture. Because there wasn't a social welfare system, because there wasn't a church that was taking uh, the responsibility of giving toward those needs and taking people in who had those needs. And because, really, the, even though God had set it up in the Old Testament, provide for the widows and orphans, they were not following the principles of Scripture. So what he's talking about, those who are marginalized, those who have nothing. So in our context, it's not just widows and orphans. One of the reasons that we do clean water for Africa is because it's scriptural. One of the reasons that we give to Christian community action is because it's scriptural. As you look over the missions that we're involved in and the things that we're involved in, and ironically, we are involved in a retirement home. And some of our groups are involved in an orphanage. It's not to be exclusive. Here's the statement. What are you doing personally for those who can do nothing for you? For those who cannot reciprocate. That's what he's talking about right here. Those who can do nothing for you. We get into this big habit of giving, hoping we'll get something back. But see, that's not giving out. That's what we make Christmas a lot of times. And, and that's how we completely abolish the meaning of Christmas because we only give to those who will give back to us. And there's a real gut check for you with the holiday season coming up. How, how often and how much will you give to those who won't be able to give anything back to you? I mean, that's the real spirit of what Christ is talking about giving, but it's easy for us to lose it. And that's what James is speaking about. Let me tell you about real religion. Real religion is not coming to church. It's not just doing activities. It's not going through formalities. It's helping those who cannot be helped. That's loving your neighbor as yourself. He's not talking about your next-door neighbor who maybe has more to you. That might be the gospel. But he's talking about your neighbors here within the world that you live in that are marginalized and have need. And it's this. 
It's to keep oneself from being polluted by the world, the discipline. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5 tells us about a form of godliness, but denying the power of it. And C.S. Lewis tells a story about it. He said, you know, I remember growing up, I grew up going to a religious school and being forced to go to church. And this was religion A. It was that you must attend, you must do these activities, you must go through these formalities. And I so hated it that I chose to become an agnostic because I wanted nothing to do with the church or with God. But then as I began to hear of some of my friends, and as I began to study and begin to become open, I realized that there wasn't just religion A, there was another there was religion B. So in a sense there was God A and God B and I had had wanted nothing to do with God A. But then I found out that there was a God, there was a Jesus loving Savior who desired to know me, who had shed his blood, who had been crucified, and who wanted to enter in into a life transforming relationship with me. And when I experienced that, and when I realized that, that's when I received Christ, and it changed me forever. James is saying, don't become religion A, don't serve God, and I hate to use that terminology, but that God A so to speak. That one, it's simply formalities. It's simply religious activities. It's simply things that you say and do. But the real and crucified Jesus Christ, the one who gives hope for those who are hurting, for those who have no hope, for those who are seeking to know truth, for those who are looking for a God who loves and gives His all and demands that we give our all in return. That's the God that we worship and that we serve. What God have you chosen today?